Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Podcast land. Hello, tour guide, tell all family. Uh, welcome back. Welcome to February. Welcome to your continued stories about American history and world history and some scandal and some protest and some interesting stuff. Uh, we are your friendly neighborhood tour guides coming to you with all things interesting and fun. As always, I am Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are the Rebecca's. Nailed it. Today, fam, it is February and we are here with some Black History Month. We love a good Black history story. Black history is American history and American history is Black history. And this month, February, is when we take a little extra time to sort of highlight the really important contributions of African-American history to our nation, to the world, to our local area, to everything. We It is included in every story about American history. And we are excited to bring some extra attention to it. We are here today. Uh, we're going to talk about a really important, I think, and meaningful event in American history. We're bringing it a little bit more modern today. Uh, before we do that, though, I would always like to just mention our patrons, of course. Our patrons are the best. They are the wind beneath our wings. They always get a special episode, including this month, on the patron feed, so make sure you're getting your patron bonus. Also, February leads to March, which means that we're heading towards spring tour season, and uh, we're gearing up for our spring tours. We've got all the tours in all the places in DC. We'll have a full schedule come the beginning of March. And if your plans for the year take you to the Washington DC area, we are better in person than we are on the pod. I know that's hard to believe since we are so great on the pod, but we are even better in person. And let me tell you, when Rebecca says all the tours, I was just looking at my March and April schedule and literally we have all the tours. So if you're coming this spring, we've got a tour for you. I promise. Um, we'll also update a little bit more on the pot as we get closer with our sort of cherry blossom thoughts in terms of when we might be hitting peak bloom. So if you're thinking about the cherry blossoms this season, thinking about spring break or summer, we're here for you. And if you're not sure where to begin, you can always email us tourguidetellall at gmail.com or info at dcbyfoot.com. We're always happy to give a little extra help and guidance to our podcast listeners and patrons. So uh, if you're a little overwhelmed thinking about your DC trip, we're here to help. But we hope you'll come and see us uh, in Washington. Yes, come and see us for realsies. We know all the good spots and are happy to help with your DC trip planning. But today, Becca, yes. what are we talking about? Oh my gosh, we are going to talk about 
a march or more specifically a series of marches that take place in Selma, Alabama. So we're turning our attention to the deep south. We're turning our attention to 1965, which um, if you've listened to the podcast, we've talked about the 60s. Broadly, we've talked about some specific events in the 60s, but this is a time of great upheaval in the United States. I think when many of us sort of have a visual conception of the civil rights movement, what we're really thinking about is, I think, 1965, 66, 67, 68. So this is an era of a lot of protesting, demonstrations, activism, and organization around addressing civil rights issues in the United States. As a little bit of background and context, particularly for those of you who've not traveled down to Alabama, Selma is a pretty sizable city. It is in the middle of the 1960s, a majority Black city. About 60% of the population is Black. However, from the turn of the 20th century, so really from the end of Reconstruction up through the 1960s, the state of Alabama has essentially decided to do whatever it can to disenfranchise Black Americans as much as possible. So they had even passed a new constitution early in the 20th century that essentially disenfranchised Black Americans from voting. Um, And they really gave a lot of power to local governments and municipalities to implement things like literacy tests and poll taxes and to use intimidation and law enforcement to really keep people, oppress people from exercising that right to vote. So imagine you've got a city like Selma. This is, um, you know, sort of a pretty sizable industrial area in Alabama in the middle of the 1960s. You've got a good sized working population there, but only 1% of eligible Black Americans are registered to vote when we get to 1965. So these tactics are working in keeping people from exercising that very basic constitutional right. Now, this is not to say that the people of Selma are taking this lying down by any means. There had been a homegrown effort in Selma and its county, which is Dallas County. I'm from Texas. I found that very confusing um, at some points where I'm like, Dallas this isn't Dallas, but Dallas County is the county that Selma is located in. There had been a pretty sizable movement starting in the 1940s through the 1960s of local organizers trying to push back. But it's a challenge when you have a sheriff who's willing to utilize law enforcement, when you have all the power of who gets to register to vote in the hands of a very small number of racist white government workers. This had been a really challenging time. And so you've got these people on the ground who are trying really hard to push back and they're being blocked at every turn. And this is probably the point to which we should mention a man named George Wallace. Oh boy. Yeah. So George Wallace is a lot and he is in the most value neutral way, really fascinating. I don't mean that in a positive way. He's just an interesting like player on the national stage. This will not be his first or last foray uh, into national politics. George Wallace is the governor at this time of Alabama. George Wallace is a rising star, he thinks, and many other people think in the Democratic Party. He gave a speech at the 1964 convention, which was about a year prior to all of what we're about to discuss. And George Wallace is, he's not the hero of this story. Let's put it that way. George Wallace is not, I don't think, a lot of people have suggested he's not really an ideologue. He wants to be in power. And the way that he's figured out how to do that is to really side with the white establishment. And George Wallace does not have a problem. And he's not the only governor to do this. He's not the only person in Alabama to do this. But he has decided to use the power of the state, armed agents of the state, to oppress people from voting, to physically prevent people from exercising their constitutionally protected rights. And he's using literally armed agents, armed police to do this. 
I think it's worth noting that Wallace is also not intimidated by the federal government either. At all. He is setting a template that many other Southern governors are going to mimic, and he's emboldened by the actions of other Southern governors, so he's not unique in this way. But he very much feels and has pushed back enough against the federal government to sort of make this a states' rights issue, too. Mm -hmm. So when you hear people talk state rights, state rights, state rights, this is what that was the right to disenfranchise, the right to oppress, the right to use, as you so, I think, beautifully stated, armed agents of the state to keep people from exercising these rights. And he has previously, leading up to 1965, actively faced off with the federal government over desegregating schools. He has pretty much spit in the face, figuratively, of President Kennedy and then uh, subsequently President Johnson when they have tried to use federal force and influence to push back against some of what Alabama is doing. And so Wallace is not um, kowtowed in any way by the federal government, and he's willing to push back because that's what the voters like. His voters in his face like seeing this. And he doesn't he doesn't fear Johnson. He doesn't fear the federal government. And Wallace is a really interesting guy because it's very easy to make him out to be like this very stereotypical villain. But there's something about him that seems to have been compelling. I don't really see it myself, but a lot of people voted for him. They did it more than once. And so he has something about his manner that really keeps him, and not just in Alabama, like he's a presence on the national stage for a long, long time. And so there's something about Wallace that is compelling to a lot of people. He is, if you're familiar with the phrase, and we mentioned it before on this pod, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. That's Wallace. That's this guy. Yeah, he gave that at his as his gubernatorial address when he becomes governor of Alabama. So that's good times. And I don't know if I'd call it a fun fact, but that line was specifically written by a speechwriter he had hired to work in his governor's office, who was an active and loyal member of the KKK. So Wallace is in bed with the KKK, very much so. And again, I, I think that you're right to point that there's perhaps some some nuance there. I think he's a man who's desperate for power. Mm -hmm. Um, And if that means the KKK, he's more than willing to get into bed with them. So what you have in Selma and what you've had in the sort of early parts of the 60s is you've got local activists uh, led by a number of people, including a woman we'll mention a little later named Amelia Boynton. And they have been trying to push back against this as much as possible. They have organized sit-ins. They have been on the ground with this effort to try to desegregate the schools, but they are just increasingly hitting up against the wall of local law enforcement. The sheriff in Selma is a man named Jim Clark, and he has no compunction about violence, and he is willing to do whatever it takes, and that doesn't really matter to him if people die in the fray. And so things are getting quite perilous. So in January of 1965... Before you get to January, I do want to just mention... The summer before all of this, the Civil Rights Act passes in Washington. Johnson had championed it. He had basically staked his reelection campaign on the Civil Rights Act. He was told that this was going to ruin his chances, and he did it anyway. It turns out Johnson was right because Johnson was great. And he was reelected overwhelmingly in 1964, one of the largest victories in modern American history. So Johnson now, as 1964 begins, he is president and his own right now. He has a huge mandate and a large support, a Democratic support in Congress, both the House and the Senate. So the Civil Rights has, Act has passed, but the activists are saying, wait a second, civil rights is one thing, but voting rights That's really what's going to make the difference. That's what makes us full citizens is that we can show up to the polls without fear of intimidation and cast our ballot. And so as 1964 sort of dawns, Martin Luther King Jr. and a bunch of other activists we're going to talk about, they sort of transition into passage of some kind of voting rights legislation. 
Yes. So this is where the attention sort of turns. And in January of 1965, again, kind of at the real dawn of Johnson's first full term as president in his own right, Martin Luther King Jr., who is leading the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, they have been meeting with other groups, specifically the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, which is what we're going to call it because otherwise it's a mouthful. Um MLK um, and his Southern Christian Leadership Conference uh, has agreed to sort of back SNCC's effort. SNCC has been on the ground in Selma in months and years leading up to this point, and they decide to really Mm -hmm. take the voting rights movement to Selma, to use Selma as sort of a spotlight. They do this because it's just the numbers are perfect for them. Again, a majority Black city where only 1% of eligible Black voters are registered to vote. You have uh, already have a lot of organization on the ground. Now you can bring them kind of the national heroes, people like MLK, who garner a lot of press attention. By 65, King is one of the most famous men in America. Where he goes, the press follows. And so King knows that by every time he mentions Selma, it turns that public media attention to this community, which he's he's savvy about and he's willing to do. It also has in so many ways like the perfect storm. You've got Wallace's governor, the sheriff who's an open racist. And so they pick Selma in part because of the white establishment that is there. They want to They know they're going to provoke a strong reaction. They know they're going to get headlines. This is not done out of the goodness of their heart, out of a vacuum. They want a a reaction from the, the national press, from people who aren't in Alabama. They want the sort of mood of the country to swing in their favor. And so they're going to pick the conditions and basically provoke a fight in a lot of ways. Yeah, they know that Wallace won't back down easily. They know that Clark is going, as Clark has demonstrated in the years leading up to this, that he is going to use his brutal and aggressive tactics against these protesters. And they know that that's going to spark outrage. So this is exactly why they choose this. Um, It's always, I think, good to note that these things are almost never just purely altruistic. No. This is a movement and they are activists and they're putting their chips on the table for a place where they know something's going to happen. So they make this decision in January that Selma is going to be the focus for their organizations. And they are going to make these efforts to, you know, people show up, try to register to vote. And there are lots of arrests, but there's really very little violence initially until we get to February 18th. So it's about six weeks into this focus on Selma. Alabama state troopers have been sent by Wallace to join with the local police. So all together, there are about 200, 250 members of law enforcement in Marion, Alabama. This is just about 20 miles or so from Selma. So just a little outside of Selma to break up. They've been sent here to break up a peaceful march that had been organized to protest the arrest of one of the local activists, James Orange, who had been involved in these voting registration efforts for months. So he's been arrested. There's a very peaceful protest and march going on. And Wallace, as he is wont to do, is going to send the state troopers down in support of Clark. And this is where chaos is going to break out. A state trooper is going to shoot a 26-year-old church deacon named Jimmy Lee Jackson. This young man is trying to protect his mother from being beaten by a police officer's club. So in the attempt to try to spare his mother this violence, he is shot. He is going to die in a hospital in Selma eight days later. So this is now the martyr for this cause, right? Mm -hmm. This is... The tragic outcome they knew was inevitable, that at some point, something like this was going to happen. And this really spurs the leaders to say, this is the moment. We can now have one large march from Selma to Montgomery, and the which was the ca- is the capital of Alabama. So the idea is to march from Selma to Montgomery to the state capital 
to confront Governor George Wallace. Initially, organizers wanted to literally take Jimmy Lee Jackson's body and lay it on the steps of the Capitol. They ultimately nixed that particular idea, but the thought is that people are looking at Selma after the death of this young man. People are looking at what's happening. Let's capitalize and let's march. Now, George Wallace, who is who he is, has publicly vowed to do whatever he can in his power to stop these marchers. And I want to just mention here something I think is important. These are nonviolent protests, but they're not passive protests, Right. Yes. These are not we have this sort of idea in the modern or modern mythos that these are passive, very kumbaya. Nonviolence is a tactic. There's a religious component to it as well. Obviously, like Southern Christian Leadership Conference, there are a bunch of preachers, but it's also a tactic. They want to highlight that the protesters are exercising their constitutionally protected right to protest their government. And they're being met with violence. They are not bringing violence. They're being met with violence. And so the tactic is to highlight what the white establishment, what the white police, what the the agents of the government, of the white government are doing to African-American citizens who are protesting for their own right to vote. So there is a lot of thought and intention behind the fact that this is going to be a march. They know that they're going to get pushback, significant violent pushback from the sheriff, from Governor Wallace. It's a tactic to sort of highlight this. It is not passive. It is meant to be in your face. It is meant to be aggressive. It's just not violent. That's, I think, a really important point to really emphasize and drill down on. Yes. And, you know, Wallace is not kidding around. He publicly states in the day before the first march takes place or the march is supposed to take place, he says that there will be no march from Selma to Montgomery. And then he actually orders the highway patrol chief to, quote, use whatever measures are necessary to prevent this march. So he is empowering and emboldening law enforcement on every level, from highway patrol to local sheriffs to state troopers, to do what they feel is necessary to stop this. And he's also kind of wink, wink, nod, nodding to just ordinary citizens who want to show up and be violent. Yes. This is, I mean, when your governor says this isn't going to happen and we're concerned about safety and protection for all, all that dog whistly stuff that allows yeah. local everyday citizens and your groups like the KKK and other white supremacist groups at the time to come out and exercise sort of that citizen's right as yeah. well. Yep. Now we're, we're talking about a march from Selma to Montgomery, but spoiler there's going to be three marches. So we're just going to put that out there right here. The first march is going to take place on Sunday, March 7th. Martin Luther King Jr. is in Atlanta. He's in Atlanta for a conference, and he is not going to participate in this first march. So he's going to send a man named Josiah Williams from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in his stead, and they will really select John Lewis of SNCC to really organize the march. And again, SNCC's been on the ground in Selma for months they have a good lay of the land there. And I think it's worth noting, SNCC had reservations about trying to launch this march initially on Sunday, March 7th. And they have reservations because they've seen Wallace's tactics up close. They've engaged with the highway patrol through the Freedom Rides. They have really seen the level of violence and aggression. And they're just worried they don't have the logistics and protection needed to launch a march so quickly. But there is this feeling that you have to strike when the iron's hot. To kind of just introduce those two people, Josiah Williams was Martin Luther King Jr.'s chief field lieutenant for Southern Christian Leadership Conference. This is a man who, for decades, had been on the ground organizing and agitating. So he is very seasoned in exactly what Rebecca was talking about. 
using nonviolence as a tactic. He understood how to organize and how to make something like this happen. He's no stranger to confronting hostile and aggressive law enforcement. Williams was a decorated war hero from World War II. He was the only survivor of his unit. He was awarded the Purple Star. He came home essentially 100% disabled from his service. As soon as he comes home, he's in his uniform, he's using a cane, and he's getting a drink at a bar when he is beaten nearly to death by a group of white men. They literally call a funeral home and put him into the back of a hearse and the funeral director or the driver uh, notices that he has a faint heartbeat and eventually finds a hospital that will take him. So that was that event was almost 20 years before this. So this is a man who has literally put his life on the line and has faced this racism up close. So Williams is not a man who's easily intimidated. And I think that's important to note. He's deeply dedicated to this cause. John Lewis, who hopefully maybe that name's familiar to you. Yes, we're talking about the man who would go on and be a longtime member of Congress, was only 25 at this point. So compare this to Williams, right? You've got kind of your seasoned elder statesman, a little bit of this movement. And then you've got John Lewis, who is essentially just a couple years out of college. But he is also quite the pro at this point when it comes to protesting. He had been on the ground doing this for seven, eight years. He was a protege of King's. He participated in the first Freedom Rides. He's a founding member of SNCC, of really trying to engage with students and get young people involved in this movement. And he's president of SNCC at this point. So again, these are two men who are very good at what they do, and they understand very clearly the risks of undertaking this march. So this is not naivete. They know what they're going to come up against. And John Williams, or John Lewis, sorry, has been, he spoke at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, which is, was about 18 months before what we're about to talk about. He was only 23 and at that point was a seasoned veteran of the civil rights struggle. So both of these two leaders, they knew what they were up against and going and headed into. And they are concerned. They know to expect trouble. On that morning, there's about 600 or so activists that are going to be marching out through Selma, out of town, towards the Edmund Pettus Bridge. This is going to be where they encounter a blockade of troopers and local law enforcement who are headed up by Sheriff Jim Clark and a major named John Cloud. Orders are given for these protesters to disperse. They are going to peacefully refuse, and law enforcement will just openly attack. As Rebecca sort of mentioned, this is not just law enforcement on the ground. You have white onlookers and local white citizens who are there. Many of them are going to be actively cheering on law enforcement as they attack protesters with clubs and tear gas. There are mounted police units that are directed to go after retreating marchers. So some of these protesters do follow the orders of law enforcement. That's part usually of the nonviolence training is to not disobey direct orders. And so some people are peacefully retreating and yet mounted police are going to chase after them, beat them and arrest them. The violence of this day is truly horrific. John Lewis suffers a skull fracture, something that he would talk about throughout the rest of his life, but nearly he, he truly believes he's going to die that day. Amelia Boyton, who I had mentioned earlier, who had been one of these Dallas County organizers for months and months and months, was beaten unconscious. One of her close friends thought that she was dead. This is all going to be done in front of the full eye of the media. Mm -hmm. There are news cameras there. There are photographers there. And so this violence is going to get broadcast all across the United States and it's dubbed Bloody Sunday. Yes. And this gets a huge reaction 
from all across the country. TV coverage really focuses on this. There are images of this in magazines and newspapers throughout the country. And this isn't a revolution in some other place in the world. This is happening on a bridge in an American street where people are being literally hit with nightsticks and going to the hospital and getting stitches and in fear for their life because of, again, armed agents of the state. Police are doing this to citizens. John Lewis himself he is interviewed after this and he says, I don't see how President Johnson can send troops to Vietnam or troops to the Congo or troops to in, in other places in Africa, and he can't send troops to Selma. Right? So he's drawing a direct contrast between we're sending our fighting men and women to other places around the world and yet violence is happening on our own streets and the president isn't sending troops to protect people exercising their constitutional rights. And you have to imagine, I think for the average middle-class American, you're watching this unfold on your TV. You're seeing what are young teenagers and college students, what look like pastors and housewives, everyday Americans being beaten by these police officers. The outcry and the turn to Johnson is kind of immediate because as you mentioned, he had written such a big civil rights flank of his reelection campaign. He had talked about it. He'd made that Civil Rights Act of 1964 such a cornerstone of his reelection. And yet here we are just a few months later, and this is happening on the nightly news. People are angry. And Martin Luther King, who again, isn't there because he's in Atlanta, immediately seizes on this moment though. He's going to start sending out dozens upon dozens of dozens of public statements. He will send statements to newspapers all across the United States. He'll appear on the nightly news. One statistic I saw said that within 24 hours, he'd made something like 15 <laughs> news appearances. And he's going to start sending out telegrams, phone calls to every religious leader, every faith leader that he knows. He is like, this is not going to go unremarked upon. We're not going to just let this happen. We're not going to be intimidated. And he calls upon just about every religion or denomination you can think of, King's got a connection to their national network, and he's going to call these faith leaders to join him for a second march to take place on March 9th. So that is just two days later. And President Johnson hears that King's on TV saying, come join me two days later, everybody come from all across the U.S. And Johnson calls him and says, please don't. Johnson is concerned about what Wallace is willing to do. If this is what he was willing to do for the first march, what would he do for the second? Johnson basically says, give me time. Please hold off. Uh, let me see what I can do. Johnson's going to say, I'm, I'm going to get a voting rights bill to Congress, but I need time. A federal judge in Alabama actually threatens a restraining order prohibiting them from marching on March 9th. He basically, the federal judge says to wait until the 11th, which would allow enough time for some federal troops to come down and perhaps protect them. And the leaders of these organizations debate and discuss, and there's, there's opinions on both sides. Should we march? Should we wait? We can't back down, but we also have to think about people's safety. And ultimately it is decided again, Tuesday, March 9th, they will march. And this time King is there. <laughs> Yes. And he leads the march. Front front and center. Yep. And now we've got 2,000 people. So this is almost three times the number of people who marched two days earlier. So mm -hmm. you've got much, much bigger crowds. You've got many more members of law enforcement. So just in the way that the size of the protest has grown, so has the size of this oppressive law enforcement. And they get to the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And they are anticipating that they will do the full march to Montgomery, which will be usually a, they're planning a couple of dates. They're going to march across the bridge. They're going to stop exactly where that attack on Sunday had begun. 
And King is going to ask everyone to stop. And then he asks them to kneel with him and they all pray together. So it makes sense. He's invited all these faith leaders, religious leaders, and it seems to be this really beautiful moment, right? We're going to acknowledge the bloodshed of two days ago. But then after prayers, King is going to ask everybody to turn around and go back to Selma. So to basically avoid another confrontation. And this gets dubbed by the local media, by the national media, I should say, as Turnaround Tuesday. So we had Bloody Sunday, and now we have Turnaround Tuesday. It's a really, I think, a brilliant tactic to have them stop emphasizing the nonviolence, emphasizing the religious aspect of this. They all, thousands of people kneeling on the bridge and praying. In front of them are the troops, law enforcement, ready to, again, reenact another version of Bloody Sunday and the emphasizing the difference between what the protesters are bringing and the violence that is coming at them from the establishment. And King is going to get criticized for turning around and heading back to Selma. But what he does here is King is sort of a masterful politician, I think, in this moment. He understands that this is the way to gain support from the president. And that's exactly what happens. So turning around sort of in, in a very literal way, turning the other cheek, heading back to Selma. This is what's going to convince Johnson that they're, again, they're on the side of, he's on got to be on the side of right here. And so Johnson basically says that Americans everywhere join in deploring the brutality with which a number of Negro citizens of Alabama were treated when they sought to dramatize their deep and sincere interest in attaining the precious right to vote. So he's going to use that language and use this stoppage of this march as he introduces a Voting Rights Act to Congress just a couple of days later. So I agree. It's a brilliant tactic by King. It allows them to avoid this sticky situation of federal restraining orders and blah, 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 blah. It keeps people relatively safe and Mm -hmm. it gives them a ton of media coverage, a ton of attention. It keeps the focus on the movement and gives Johnson that breathing room to really then issue this bill. I say that it it relatively kind of avoids violence because they don't have that conflict with law enforcement, but violence persists. There was a man who had joined King in this second march, a man named James Reed. He was a white Unitarian minister from Massachusetts who was moved by King's appeal to faith leaders to come down and be a part of this. So he traveled to Alabama from Massachusetts. He was part of Turnaround Tuesday. And that night, March 9th, he's jumped by a group of local white men and he is beaten Uh, essentially to death, he dies uh, within 48 hours. So even without a confrontation with law enforcement, still there's a huge risk to the lives and safety of these individuals, regardless of the color of their skin. President Johnson is going to personally actually call Reeves' widow to apologize and to express his condolences. And Johnson is going to meet with Governor George Wallace to really pressure him to back, back off protect these marchers, do what needs to be done within your job, right? And back voting rights, let this go. And Johnson really tries to put some pressure on Wallace. Wallace, though, it really seems doesn't think his voters are with him, right? He doesn't think that at the end of the day, uh, he can really back down from this. Johnson on the 15th is going to address Congress, a joint session of Congress, and he's going to publicly identify with these marchers. He will say their cause must be our cause too. So within, you know, just a few days of the death of James Reeve, within a few days of of Bloody Sunday, he is out there saying, this is all of us, right? We have to 
back these marchers, we have to take legislative action. And two days after that speech, he formally submits his Voting Rights Act to Congress. In this time frame, this has been about a week that all this is going on, the marchers, the organizations are putting together a detailed plan for their march to Montgomery. They are not going to be deterred. They don't want this to simply be legislative action. They want to see this through. The idea is to confront George Wallace at the end of the day, and they're going to do it. That said, they're going to put together a plan. They're going to submit it before Judge Judge Johnson, who was an appointee of Wallace. This is an Alabama guy, but they have laid out everything. They've laid out their own plans for protection, their plans for where they're going to stay, how they're going to do this. And this federal judge not only approves their right to march, but enjoins the governor and local law enforcement from harassing or threatening the participants. So finally, 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 we get somebody to sort of push back against Wallace in his own state a little bit and say, look, whether you agree or not, they have a constitutional right to peacefully demonstrate and petition the government. And that brings us to March 21st. So March 21st is the final march of the three. Um, They set out with the full protection of the federal government, including National Guard and FBI agents, and they have that court order from the judge. So Selma to Montgomery, Alabama is a little over 50 miles. So it's not a day's walk. It takes them, they march about seven to 17 miles each day, depending on the conditions. There are a few things that slow them down. So they're slowed down by a court order that allows only 300 marchers at any one time on a two lane highway, which is most highways in the country in the 1960s are two lanes. And so you can only have 300 on a highway at any one time. So that's going to slow down the process of this march. They camp in the yards of supporters' homes at night while they're marching. Uh, and they're entertained by activists, entertainers like Harry Belafonte, Alina Horn. People are going to come to sort of entertain them as they are camping out overnight in between the days of the march. And if after five days and 54 miles, 25 thousand demonstrators arrive on the steps of the Capitol in Montgomery, Alabama. So this is the march grows as they continue on. There is a whole movement. They have protection by court order and federal troops. And so they are going to make it in five days to Montgomery. And I mean, it's just really powerful when you think about it. One day is full of freezing rain. They're doing this literally through these tiny rural communities. There's one place they marched through where not a single Black citizen of that town is registered to vote. And it's people of all backgrounds participating in this. It's really this incredible moment where they come together. And when they arrive, They are coming into Montgomery a full force. They're making their way to the Capitol. They are singing a protest song with lyrics that I quite enjoy. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on, hold on. I've never been to heaven, but I think I'm right. You won't see George Wallace anywhere in sight. So he's getting just like this shady, petty, you know, you're not going to heaven, bud, song from religious leaders from across the United States. Now, they're going to attempt to deliver a petition into the hands of Governor George Wallace. You will be shocked to learn Wallace is not interested in even for the cameras, right? He's not interested in anything that would look like 
he's acquiescing or bowing down. They're going to basically be blocked by state troopers at the door. They're going to be told that Wallace isn't there, which is not the case. Eventually, one of Wallace's secretaries shows up and takes the petition, but they're pretty much turned away. They're not going to get inside. And it makes Wallace look pretty weak, I have to say, right? He chooses to not even be willing to sort of come out and come face to face. And Naturally, King's going to use this opportunity to give a speech, right? They've completed this massive march. It will become known as his how long, not long speech. There's a few good quotes. The whole thing's great. I'll put it in the show notes. But two little sections I want to share. One is, I think, probably one of the most famous kind of pieces from that speech. The end we seek is a society at peace with itself, a society that can live with its conscience. I know you are asking today, how long will it take? I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long. And I think that he's not just, you know, blowing smoke. It's not just a rhetorical device. Look at how much they had changed in this situation in a matter of a couple of weeks. How quickly or relatively they were able to pressure the president to act, how they were able to kind of get public opinion in support. He's not saying it's easy. He's saying it's frustrating, but that it won't be long if we keep to the task at hand. He also will later say, quote, in that speech, there never was a moment in American history more honorable and more inspiring than the pilgrimage of clergymen and laymen of every race and faith pouring into Selma to face danger at the side of the embattled Negroes. So he really uses this moment, right, to talk about how important this cause is and how much they have put on the line. And again, it's really like, I think King's speech is really remarkable here. And he does this a couple of different times in his career. He talks about it's important when you're leading a movement to inspire people that something is wrong, but also you have to give them hope that things are changing, that they're making progress. And he does this in a really masterful way in the speech that, hey, we've come so far and that we don't have, you know, we're, we're move, things are moving in our direction. And he, this is the, one of the last speeches he ever gives in his life is about how we're heading in the right direction. Like, we're getting to the, the mountaintop speech he gives right before his death. We're heading there. Uh, and so it's a great balance of what is happening that is wrong, but also telling the marchers and their supporters that you are what's right about what is happening in this scenario, that you are in the right, that you are, we're, we're getting movement, we're getting traction, we're getting change. Uh, and I think that that's an important sort of message that King does a great job of delivering. I think it's worth mentioning that evening that there is still violence, right? One thing to keep in mind is that they march to Montgomery, but they have to get back to Selma um, because that's where they started. Most of their buses and vehicles and transport is in Selma. And so there are going to be volunteers who will volunteer to shuttle people basically back and forth. Um, when you're not marching, it's only about a 50-mile drive, right? So you can take people back and forth. There's youngish, late 30s white woman from Michigan named Viola Leozo who is going to be one of these volunteers shuttling activists back and forth. She's a mother of five, and she is going to be killed, assassinated by members of the KKK for participating in this, for shuttling these marchers basically back to where they started. Among the Klansmen in the car was an FBI informant. So there had been an FBI informant undercover uh, embedded with the KKK. The FBI is going to... Um, spread some things about Viola that we don't believe today are based on any real fact-based evidence. But you can imagine too, even after this march, when you have the death of this young woman, it 
uh, will really kind of spur more and more people to action around this cause. And the legacy of this march, these marches, I think can't really be overstated in terms of the significance it has with voting rights in 1965. Um, this is all taking place in March and by August, on August 9th, Lyndon B. Johnson is signing the Voting Rights Act of 1965 into law. This is not without resistance. There are many members of Congress who speak out against this. There are members of Congress who, in the aftermath of these march, will say, well, you can't trust these marchers. There was widespread incident of alcoholism and abuse and all sorts of terrible things. People will have to push back against all these sort of false rumors about the marchers. And despite that, despite members of Congress openly sort of mocking these efforts, Johnson, um, through his strong-armed political skill, is going to get this through Congress. And it's it's such a masterful, like Johnson's a master politician by almost any measure. And this is a really great example of that. Getting Congress to act on something this large in about five months is a really tall task. Even with the majorities that Johnson had, it is a difficult thing to go from the end of March to signing a bill at the beginning of August, right before their August recess. That's a really quick turnaround. And it shows Johnson's real mastery of the situation uh, and his ability to use this to affect the change that they needed. It doesn't happen the next day, but it happens very, very fast. It also, I think, is worth at least mentioning that neither Jimmy Lee Jackson nor Reverend Reeves murders were ever prosecuted. So that also, I feel like, should be mentioned. Those are two, the two men who, one who started the marches and one who died in the midst of the marches, their murderers are never prosecuted for this. Uh, when LBJ signs the Voting Rights Act of 1965 into law, he invites King and other civil rights leaders to Washington for the signing ceremony. In fact, he's going to turn around. So presidents, when they sign a bill, they actually sign with one pen for each letter of their names so that they can do what Johnson does, which is turn around, give one of these pens to Dr. King immediately after signing part of his name. So it's a, a really, uh, it's an honor that he gives to King. King's right behind him. You'll be photographs of this uh, signing. Uh, and LBJ specifically going to mention Selma in his remarks uh, when he signs this bill. King himself is going to note in a later speech that year that Montgomery led to the Civil Rights Act of 1957 and 1960. Birmingham inspired the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and Selma produced the voting rights legislation in 1965. So King is going to sort of justifiably talk about how this led to the Voting Rights Act really accelerated a process that would have taken otherwise a lot, much longer time to come to full fruition. And I think the legacy, the impact of this is, is far reaching. It, it's become such a watershed moment of the civil rights movement. The bridge itself, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, had continued to be through the 70s, 80s, 90s, a spot of protest, but also kind of recognition and, and commemorance, a commemoration of these events. I think most of us, uh, at least my age, remember not that long ago on the 50th anniversary when President Obama with John Lewis and Amelia Boynton and many of the people who had participated in this marched across. 
the bridge. Coretta Scott King would lead a march in 1975, King's Widow, across the bridge. So it continues to be sort of the spot where we can remember and acknowledge the incredible struggle in this country. And it's worth visiting if you uh, take a, a trip down to Alabama. I'll mention just as a little side note, they've done incredible work in Montgomery to really commemorate civil rights history there. There's a lot of new, newer markers and commemorations and museums and spaces. And I, I really applaud those in Alabama who pushed for that in the last five, six years to really flesh out the civil rights history. But it's well worth um, making a trip from Selma to Montgomery if you haven't done it and go across the bridge and, and see that space. And obviously, there's been, I think, an effort in the more recent past to acknowledge the physical sacrifice so many of these made. Uh, so many of these marchers made um, congressional gold medals were awarded to the foot soldiers of Selma. President Obama was there to help acknowledge that as well. So we, we've made, I think, a, a more concerted effort in the modern era, contemporary era, to sort of acknowledge that people died and people were hospitalized and people really put their lives on the line to make this happen. And in fact, when John Lewis passes away in 2020, his casket goes over the Edmund Pettus Bridge on its way to Washington, to Lyon State in the Capitol. That's so right. So we did oh. cross one more time. Uh, this has been amply represented in pop culture. The most important is going to be the film, was it 2014? 15. So it's called Selma. Uh, it's directed by Ava DuVernay. It is excellent. Cannot literally recommend highly enough. It's basically the, the development of the voting rights campaign, the Selma marches, all three of them. And it's, I think, really fantastic. I particularly love Tom Wilkinson as LBJ. Um, he's, I think, yeah. Pour one out for Tom Wilkinson, first of all, RIP. Yeah, I know. Um, the, ma the man did so much great work, but I, I do think he's excellent, excellent as LBJ. And I also think Tim Roth is really, Tim Roth is great as a villain in everything. He just is. And but Wall Wallace is certainly not the hero. No, Wallace is definitely not the hero, <laughs> but like Roth does a great job of making him both smarmy and terrible and yet layered and complex all at the same time so I really like that but it's a it's a f utterly fantastic movie I can't recommend Selma enough uh I actually just my Facebook memory a few days ago I'm such an elder millennial my Facebook memory <laughs> reminded me that we had just we had seen Selma and I had walked out of the movie theater and I was just so blown away by it David Oyelo as King is excellent Ava DuVarnier's direction is phenomenal um if you visit the National Museum of African American History and Culture she produced a short film called August 28th which is about several events that occur on August 28th and it's a really really good short film and they've just brought it back to kind of playing it regularly at the museum. So I have to recommend that. A fun or interesting fact about Selma that you may not know is that Ava DuVarnier had to sort of work around the fact that the King family had already licensed the rights to all of King's speeches to another studio. So um, Steven Spielberg um, at the time in the kind of 20 teens had been dancing around the idea of an MLK biopic and he had gotten the King estate to license King's speeches. So she could not use 95% of the speeches associated with Selma. <laughs> um, so like the how long, not long speech, she couldn't use exact language. And I think it's brilliantly done um, in the screenplay to paraphrase and give the impression of these very famous speeches without using the exact language. It plays a little fast and loose with some of the 
some of the way in which this goes down. And of course, I think the way in which some of the shades of Wallace might be uh, shocking to people, but I think it's a really robustly directed film and uh, it's very moving. And I think this is a great time. It's You can find it to stream pretty uh, readily available at the moment. At the time that we're recording this anyway, it's pretty easy to find on streaming, <laughs> uh, but I highly, highly recommend it. Um, we'll also put a few links in show notes to some interviews with people who participated in these, including John Lewis. But that's that's the the Selma marches marches of 1965. And um, if you walk away from this episode with anything, it's how important the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was and how important it is to consider the difference between having a constitutional right to vote and being able to actively engage with that constitutional right. Yes. Yep, I agree. And also that nonviolence is a tactic as well as, and I, it's a, it is part of the tactic of protest and that protest is supposed to make you feel slightly uncomfortable. That's the whole point of protest. Yeah. I love nonviolence is not passive. That's, that's a really, really good way to sum it up, right? It's not a passive act. I love it. Thank you guys so much for coming along with us, um, talking about some of these grittier, uncomfortable bits of history that are important to talk about. We always really appreciate it. If you have thoughts, if you have questions, if you have anything, reach out to us. We're on social media, Tour Guide Tell or Tour Guide Tell All on most of the major like social media channels. You can email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We'll have another special patron episode coming out at the end of this month. And next month is March. It's Women's History Month. So, you know, we love talking about women always. And so we've got some good episodes lined up for you next month yes thank you for sticking with us and see you next month bye guys